executing God's judgment as he was instructed. But really before that, we get to see in Joshua a man that lived through God's judgment and had to experience that. And we should not discount how difficult that would be and how that might challenge somebody's faith. Now, though he was a warrior, at the end of his life, he became a bit of a preacher and he laid down the sword and picked up the Bible. And he delivered three sermons at the end of Joshua. And each one of these sermons, it stresses faithfulness, love of God above everything else, and obedience to all of his commands, obedience to his word. It's basically the exact same thing that we are called to as Christians. It's the same message we've been studying in 1 John. And in fact, it is the same thing we see in the Great Commission, the command to all of us in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. How? By baptizing them and teaching them all that God commanded. The first of these sermons you'll find in Joshua 22. Verse 5, he says, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded to you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments and to cling to Him and to serve Him with all, with all your heart and with all your soul. That was given to just three tribes. His audience gets bigger each time. The next sermon he gives, he calls together the elders, the heads of the tribes, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And again, he gives a sermon with very much the same themes. And in Joshua 23, 6, he says, Therefore, be very strong. Be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. There are no compromises. And no compromise is possible or pleasing or acceptable to God. Now, if you just took those two sermons, there's a couple of words there that should catch our attention because they affect our daily walk. The first is he said to be very careful. Be very careful to observe the law. We need to know who God is and what He has said in His Word if we want to be faithful to Him. And we need to do this with care and with diligence because the consequences are severe and He goes into those in His sermons. Second, He told the leaders, you need to be very strong. On top of taking care to know this, you need to be very strong. To be able to stand for truth and walk in God's ways. It's not easy to do this, to face an unfaithful world. But what he was really pointing to them to was it's even harder when that unfaithfulness is going to present itself in the people of God, in the church, in our way of talking, but in the Israelites and among the leaders themselves. Again, the consistency here is perfect. You see this not only coming in Judges, which is just one generation after Joshua, but you'll see it all throughout the New Testament, warning us again and again and again about the false teachers or false prophets or, or philosophies or ideologies that will arise from within and be embraced by the church, much to its demise. It takes care and diligence to know God's Word, and it takes strength to stand alone, to stand faithfully, to draw that biblically, bi- bleh, biblical line in the sand over which you will not cross. 
you will remain faithful. And that takes strength. And that brings us now to the sermon we'll actually look at. Again, only two verses in Joshua 24. So he's called three tribes. He's called all the leaders. Now he calls all the people together. And he begins in that sermon by pointing to the sovereignty and the majesty of God. He reminds them of God's mighty works. He reminds them that God has in fact just recently delivered them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And that He has gone out and He has conquered these pagan nations, nations that Israel on its own could not conquer. And He is giving them the land that He has promised. Joshua makes it very clear in the opening part of this sermon that it was God at work. It was not on the strength of Joshua And it was certainly not on the strength of the Israelites, but it was God who delivered and God who provided this. And then the sermon shifts in verse 14. Now it shifts to what we call exhortation or encouragement or giving us commands and instruction. And these are our verses this morning. Beginning in verse 14, we read, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. Virtually right in the middle of that text is the thing that should grab our attention. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. It doesn't matter whether you're in Scripture or in daily life. There are choices that present themselves to us constantly. And there are no neutral positions. We, We kid ourselves when we think there are. This is what we call the myth of neutrality. We think that we can be neutral, but there is no neutral position. That myth of neutrality presents itself when someone says kind of unwittingly that They're on the fence. They're not picking a side or they're not picking which way they come out on an issue. But by default, they end up picking by not making a decision. It's sort of that old adage, to to not choose is to choose. And it happens all the time. We'll do it often when we know that something that we're doing is questionable or it's wrong or or it's going to cause some discomfort because people won't approve of it. But at its core, it's something we want to do. And so we'll be a little fuzzy around the edges with our language. There's an illustration for me that came on this just in a conversation I had a week ago. It was with the head of one of the Baptist denominations. And I was able to ask him, because I was actually very curious, what's the position of the denomination? Is it egalitarian or is it complementarian? Now, in plain English, what I was asking, and he understood this, was does does the denomination follow the clear biblical teaching that the office of elder and pastor is reserved for men? Or or has the denomination actually embraced culture, scrapped those parts of the Bible, and opened up everything to men and women? And his response was that the denomination did not have a position. I'm using this to to illustrate the myth of neutrality, because you're going to see it so clearly here. Because he explained what that meant to me. He said the, the The denomination does not have a position, but it allows churches in bigger, more metropolitan areas, cities that are more liberal, to appoint women as pastors, and they often do. 
And for those churches who tend to be in more rural areas or more biblically conservative, they'll take care of themselves by appointing only male pastors. What does that tell you? It tells you they are egalitarian, right? It ignores scripture. It favors a cultural position instead. That is the myth of neutrality at work, right? To say you have no position, but by not affirmatively or openly choosing one direction, you actually choose anyway. You always end up choosing. On every issue, you always end up choosing. You never get away from it. And Joshua is drawing us to that fact in this passage. He's saying all people will either choose to serve God or they will choose to to follow and serve any number of idols, kind of an unlimited number, only limited by the imagination of a human heart set to rebel against God. But let's come back to that, and we will, and we'll take this now just as it is laid out. He starts off, now therefore. Now therefore points us back, as I said, to marveling at all that God had done, and he does this in the first 13 verses. But what he's saying as he then goes on to make these commands is that what God has done in saving you, what God has done in saving us, provides the basis, the encouragement on which we can choose to follow the Lord always faithfully without compromise and without resort to false gods or false ideas, past, present, or future. He's saying that based on everything that God has done, You can really only have one reasonable and logical response. In their context, he is looking at them and he is saying to them that by God's mighty works, you stand here, free men and women, alive today, and you are getting ready to enter the promised land. And this is because of what God did. It was God that parted the Red Sea and that your fathers and grandfathers walked through. And it was God that defeated your enemies that you could have never defeated. When God's mercy and His deliverance are on full display, then you can only properly react with fear and reverence and awe and worship and obedience. And that's exactly what happens in the New Testament. It's the same pattern that we're given. The Apostle Paul does this in the letter to the Romans. The first 11 chapters of Romans lays out our helpless and hopeless state as sinners and that we are destined for punishment, but then it goes on and it talks about the mercy of God in saving a people for Himself by sending His Son. It tells of God's nature, His character, our rebellion, the just results of that rebellion. But it ends with such a perfect picture of God's mercy. He sent a perfect substitute for us in Jesus Christ so that we can be saved. And then Paul does the same thing that Joshua does here. On that basis, if you understand all of this, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you can look into and understand the mystery and the majesty of God in sending His Son to live this perfect life and die as a substitute on the cross for anyone who believes in Him, he says, now that you understand that, in verse, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, so because of all these things, same thing Joshua was doing, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable 
perfect. It was true in the Old Testament. It is true today. If you know God is holy and just, then you will be blown away by His mercy and His love in saving sinners like us if we will just repent and believe in Him. And He's delivered us from our captivity as well. Our captivity, our slavery to sin. And He has brought us, as we have seen in 1 John, into a loving relationship with Him as children of God now. Joshua, having pointed to that in his sermon, says, if you understand all this, then fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. What does it mean to fear the Lord? You see that over and over again, mostly in the Old Testament, spoken to people, to fear the Lord. It's not calling on us as believers to be afraid of God. That's not what that means. That word does occasionally get used for that, for unrepentant sinners, or those who stand in opposition to God and His nature as expressed in His commandments and His moral standards. And we see that directly sometimes in passages like Hebrews 10, 30 and 31, which says, the Lord will judge His people. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is where you need to be afraid. But what Joshua is commanding here. When he uses the term fear, and as you see this in the Old Testament, is that we are to approach God with an attitude of reverence, and an attitude of great awe at who He is and what He has done. He is instructing us as children of God to come to Him and realize that He is our Creator, and we are His creation, and there is a vast gap between those two things. That He is our sovereign King, worthy of all of our obedience, and He is our only Redeemer, who can save us for all eternity. It has such deeper meaning for us than it did for the people of that time who were looking forward to the coming Messiah. And we get to look back on His coming. We live under the new covenant. And we are those who are purchased by the perfect blood of the Lamb. We're called then in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 to be reconciled to God because For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And if we understand that, if we understand that work of God in delivering us, then we should only react with fear, right? With reverence, with awe, to serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Because 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, and we should always remember this, you are not your own. You aren't your own. For you were bought with a price. And that price was the precious blood of the incarnate, eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. If you really grasp that, how could you react with anything but fear and awe for what He has done and serve Him? Joshua says here, our fear of God, our service, it must be done in truthfulness, faithfully, honestly. God hates hypocrites. We see this All throughout Scripture, he hates hypocrites. Those who outwardly give the appearance of honoring him. All the while, the person is using religion for the advancement of themselves or some other agenda. We can't profess with our mouths to believe one way and to deny that belief with our lives. We just can't serve both God and the world. Joshua makes very clear in this passage that to serve God in this way, to fear God in this way, It is exclusive. He says, put away the gods your father served 
beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. There is no room for any other God. Not an idol, not money, not fame, not self, nothing. You serve God and you serve Him exclusively and you put away all else. And we remember when we look at this that our God does not change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, we read in Hebrews, the command is exactly the same across the Bible. Our devotion to God, our worship of Him, must be the top priority in our lives. Nothing can be allowed to take priority over God. The most difficult thing for us is when it comes to loving others, our relationships. We have to remember that that love is only pleasing to God when it is derivative of our love for Jesus Christ. Our faithfulness must be true and pure to the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No compromises are acceptable or pleasing to God. He gives us no room in this. A couple examples from the New Testament, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, perhaps one that hits us even more so today, James 4, 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We can't have other things in our life that we worship other than God. We just can't profess to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, saved by His person, His work on the cross, and then maintain a separate life, a special place for something else that God can't touch. He can't get a hold of that. I'm going to prioritize that. We have to be able to say like Paul did in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. And this is a man, you remember Paul, he's on the rise within religion. He gave up a lot. And he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And if we're honest, we, we really need to wrestle with that. Is that how, in fact, we feel when we look at what God has done for us? That He has saved us for all eternity, that we literally look at everything we have, our, our careers, our homes, our families, and say, you know what, I count it all as loss for the one thing that's the most valuable to me is knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. And for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. You can't obey your way in. You can't do things to earn God's favor. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Righteousness only comes from our faith. And when we're commanded to be holy for He is holy. It comes as a result of our placing all of our faith and our trust in Him. I said it can be especially painful when it comes to relationships. But Jesus himself was so clear on this that he demands 100% uncompromising loyalty to him. He said in Matthew 10, 34-38, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Why does he start off that way? Because the reality is, if you are a follower of Christ in all of your life, you are going to have some relationship difficulties. And non-believers will not understand you. They will not understand why you can't compromise on your beliefs. Why you can't just change God's Word in a way that you want it to. 
that Jesus says elsewhere, count the cost of following me. It doesn't come free and easy, but it is a beautiful thing. He continues in verse 35, he focuses on the family. There is no other closer relationship, particularly back then. For I have, not, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Those are powerful words. We often apply things to just relationships we have outside the family and say, I'm not going to speak up or I'm not going to live this way because they might not like me. They might stop being my friend if I speak truth to their life. Knowing all the way, oh, while they stand in judgment someday, if you had to stand there, they would look at you and say, why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you warn me? And you will say, because I wanted you to be my friend. So I didn't say a word. I wanted you to like me. Eternity is a long time. It's hard for us to get our heads around that. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Joshua, coming back to his sermon, he presents a choice to the people of Israel. That choice is presented to us as well. They follow God looking forward. We follow Christ looking back. The Messiah has come. And Joshua lays out this choice in verse 15. And here's where we'll dwell for the rest of the time. Joshua continues and he says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, if you saw the title for this sermon, you'll know that this is where I pulled it from. Choose and keep choosing. Why I say that is because there is a verb tense here that we don't have in English. So we can't put it that way here. But this verb tense that Joshua uses when he says that they have chosen to serve the Lord, it conveys that Joshua made a decision in the past to serve the Lord. But it is continuous. He is making that decision each and every day. And in the present, while he's preaching, he is choosing to follow the Lord. And it looks forward to the fact that he will continue to choose to follow the Lord until his days come to an end. It is a continuous choosing. It, it again, it destroys this fallacy that we like to live with here that there's a moment in time where you can come forward at a, at a rally or, or whatever we call those things, or a church service, you can say a prayer, you can make a commitment that you can be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ on that cross, and then walk out that door and live like a heathen, live to please the world, compromise on every single thing, show by your life that you are unchanged, untransformed, you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, that in fact, you just said words, and then you leave and go away. And when someone does this, when they deny the work of Christ on their behalf with their very life, they have in fact decided that it is evil or it is worthless to truly follow the Lord. They instead follow other gods. They embrace other ideas. 
philosophies that were warned against in the New Testament. They mix and match truth and error to come up with something that is more palatable to them. They take part of God. They leave the rest. Just take the parts that work for your life. And that is following false gods. And just as Galatians 1 tells us there is no other gospel, we also know there are no other gods. Isaiah 45, 5, God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. There is only one. Well, given that truth, they knew that truth. Joshua then lays out really an absurd set of choices for them, a silly choice. And he's saying to them, you can deny to serve the only God, the one true living God, and instead pursue the gods of the past, the things that your ancestors worshipped. That's the first category he's mentioning here. Or you can deny the one true living God. You can look around you at where you live now and what the people do. And you can worship contemporary idols, the things that help you fit in and be liked and be loved by the world that is opposed to God. These are the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. It's really no choice though, is it? It's a silly set of options. It's a decision between truth and lies. Will you follow truth or will you follow a lie? But it's a continuous choosing. These things come at us every day. That is, in fact, why when we go through 1 John, we continually see this. What does the life of a believer look like? Well, we see verses like 1 John 1, 9 and 2, 1 through 2, which sort of give us this snapshot of what it looks like. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This daily repentance, sometimes multiple times, usually in my life multiple times. You guys are probably much holier than I am. Multiple times a day. You're looking at God and saying, how did I slip into that? I failed that. Thought wrong. Got angry at something I shouldn't have gotten angry at. And then chapter 2, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, you have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. He's done everything needed. If you'll just trust him and believe him. The commands are very similar throughout this. But what I want us to focus on, the time we have left, is the man behind the sermon. Let's look at Joshua a little bit, who said these words, who made uh, this choice to follow God and continued to choose each and every day to follow God. Because Joshua really experienced something that not many of us do. He saw both judgment and he saw blessing, and his faith never wavered. In God. He knew God. He knew Him as the sovereign creator to whom all things belong anyway, right? You are not your own in our parlance, but He saw Him that way like David's prayer that we read this morning. And He knew Him as a God who tests the heart and takes great pleasure in our righteousness and our holiness and how we respond no matter what temptation we face or what circumstance we find ourselves in, good or bad. So when we think about Joshua, the first thing we know about him is he is the assistant of Moses from his youth. Numbers 11, 28 tells us that. So imagine this, and this is where we would love to have volumes on it. Joshua assisted Moses from the time he was young. 
He was at his side. He watched his daily life. He listened to his prayers. He would have had countless conversations with Moses along the way. Listen to a description of Moses. Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And this only scratches the surface, right? It doesn't even touch Moses' constant intercession in prayer to God on behalf of Israel, saving them time and time again. And I read that for one reason. I want you to know Moses and who Joshua served for one reason. And that reason is that Moses would never be permitted to set foot in the promised land. He would never set foot in the promised land after leading Israel for all that time. The closest he would get is that God would allow him to see into it from the top of a mountain. Why is that? Remembering that Joshua is by his side. Moses had sinned. Moses had committed a sin in pride and anger at the people at Meribah. And in Numbers 20, verse 12, God says, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. That is a sermon for a different day, but dwell on that. Because you didn't represent God as perfect and holy and powerful enough to do these things, but instead gave the appearance that you had the power. You will face this judgment. It's temporal. Moses is in heaven. There's no question about that referred to in the New Testament. But he never gets past this judgment, this consequence for this one sin. And so he'll die without ever actually setting foot in that land that he led the Israelites toward for so many years. And it will be Joshua who does this. Now don't you think For just an instant, that if you had served this man from the time that you were young, that he had preached God and his salvation and his power and his mercy so many times, and then you watched as God executed judgment for what seems to us such a small sin. And God never relents. God doesn't suddenly say, you've done enough good things now, Moses, now you can go in the promised land. Joshua watches this, and he watches how Moses handles this. And instead of running away, he doesn't lose faith. He continued to watch Moses pray and intercede for the people, and watched him lead a people who was always rebelling or on the brink of rebellion, and always calling them back. And yet every time he looked, he must have said, but for this one sin, God's not going to let you in the promised land? Really? That's a tough one if you really think through that. That alone would would drive many people away from their faith. You hear this all the time in the excuses that people give today. Well, I could never worship a God who, fill in the blank, like who who would allow that person to not go to heaven. I could never worship a God who, who looks at them that way or allows this catastrophe to happen. That's not how Joshua reacts. 
right? He lands in a different place. He chooses to follow the Lord. He chooses to do that with reverence and awe and in truth and faithfulness. And what he sees in that judgment is that God is just and God is holy. And the only hope for humanity is worship and God's mercy that might come upon us. But Joshua would also experience God's judgment personally. You see this in Numbers 13. In Numbers 13, this is where God commands through Moses, pick 12 men to go into the land and spy out Canaan, right? The promised land. You're going to get this first glimpse of the land. And you can only imagine that as the 12 were picked, there was some enthusiasm. They had known each other. They'd been traveling with each other. They were, they were people who were well-known in each one of the 12 tribes. And they go and they spend 40 days in this wilderness area. And they come back. And then in verses 15 through 29, you see what the impact of fear is on the people of God. That fear kept them from trusting. It kept them from obeying. It kept them from glorifying God. And only two men of that 12 remained faithful to God and tried to rally the Israelites. And that was Caleb and that was Joshua. The Israelites didn't trust God. They gave in to fear. And as a result, they turned away from him. And when they gave into their fear, what did they do? They made that faithful minority their biggest enemy. We'll see that in what happens in Numbers 14, 8 through 10. Joshua and Caleb try again. They're trying to draw people back to faith in God. And they say, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land for their bread to us. Their protections removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. There's no man worthy of fearing. Fear God. He'll deliver us. He's promised to do this. These people are consumed with fear. And listen to how they respond. Verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. This is Joshua's experience, right? He is now preaching truth to these people. He's expecting to have some success, I would think. Calling them back to the promise of God. Uh, They're surely going to turn. And they don't. In fact, not only do they not turn, they're going to murder him. They're going to stone him with stones. Not the way I would want to go, by the way. And the only thing that stops them is the end of verse 10 says, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. It was the only intervention of God that stopped them. It's fascinating to me because we have entire churches and whole denominations that give up the fight for truth simply because they don't want to be out of step with the world. We don't want to not get invited to speak at the right conferences or attend the right events or have the right seats at the right tables. Or we're going to be criticized by the secular press who would never agree with anything in the Bible anyway. And so we'll waffle and we'll back off in fear. These guys don't just stand to get disliked on Facebook or or get their, their YouTube thing canceled. No, they stand to get stoned. For, for standing up to get murdered by the people. And yet he never wavers. He never says, well, 
Maybe I'll turn to a more progressive form of this religion and we can do it that way. He doesn't do that. He stands firm even then. But it's not over for Joshua. You have to think of him crying out to God, "What what am I doing wrong here? But the judgment of God falls upon nations that rebel against him. He builds nations up, he tears them down, and he has done that all throughout history, and he does that with Israel. Numbers 14, 34 through 38, he says to the Israelites, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. Is that going to be a fun 40 years? No. You will know my displeasure every day. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. Why do we think it's going to be so easy to be faithful in our world? It wasn't easy for Joshua. We focus on things when we think of Joshua, like Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, and all of these great warrior tales. It is not easy for him. I don't know why we think it would be easy for us. But we have a very hard time if we think we're going to suffer through something for five minutes, right, for standing up for our faith. Certainly five days, definitely five months. We wouldn't sign up for that. But look at what Joshua really did. Put yourself in his shoes. He watched these other ten men, men that he had gone out with triumphantly to go spy out the land. He watched ten of them die of the plague. And that had to be very unpleasant. That is not like just they got struck by lightning and disappeared. No, you watch them suffer. And you watch them die for their disobedience. But what did Joshua do for the next 40 years? God didn't pluck Joshua and Caleb out of Israel and put them up in a mansion someplace where they could whine and dine and be taken care of and not experience any of the hardships of life for their faith while the rest of Israel suffered for 40 years. That's not what happened to Joshua. He wandered. He wandered in the desert because he was not immune from the suffering of people under God's judgment. And neither are we. And we need to get that out of our heads. We will suffer, but we will be able to turn in faith to God, always focusing on eternity. Others cannot do that. And that was where Joshua was at. He wandered for 40 years, even though every day he woke up, he knew I wasn't guilty of their sin. In fact, I had called on them to turn from their evil ways and follow the Lord. And as he wandered, and as he wandered, he had to watch and live through the suffering of those around him. Remember, he comes out with these people. These are his brothers and sisters, his cousins, his uncles. And they die in the wilderness. And he watches that for 40 years. And he doesn't turn away. He doesn't say, this is a God who is unfair Because I deserved blessing for being faithful. No, he has a very realistic view on things. None of us who believe get what we deserve. We get the benefit of God's mercy. 
And Joshua is able to continue to be faithful and choose to be faithful during this time. Now, all of this happens and then Moses is going to pass away and Joshua will, in fact, inherit that mantle. He will lead Israel from that point on. And when God commissions Joshua, he gives him a very clear and repetitive reminder and instruction. He says over and over something to him. And we need to take this to heart as well. In Deuteronomy 31.23, it starts where the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you will bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. Be strong and courageous. It is not comfortable. And it takes great courage to remain faithful in the face of people's natural disposition to rebel against God, to seek their own way in this life. That's true now. It was true for Joshua then. There will always be a temptation, a lure of false gods, a lure of false promises that will make this life easier for us. If we'll just waffle a bit on being so faithful. God is telling him, if you're going to remain faithful, if you're going to lead these people, you must be strong in your choice to follow God. And he's reminded of this multiple times, and so are we, but he's given this one other piece. You've got to be strong and courageous, but you have got to ground yourself in God's Word. Because that is where your strength is going to come from. And that is where your courage is going to come from. Listen to Joshua 1, 6-9. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful. Have we seen that before? Be strong, be careful to do all to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. You can have no compromises. You don't get to pick and choose. Stick with it, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law refers to the Scripture, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Are you getting the point? I hope Joshua got it. I think we should too. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. You are going to face all kinds of challenges. Do not be dismayed. There are going to be lots of people who don't believe and follow. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We get that promise too, by the way, at the end of Matthew in 28. And behold, and lo, I am with you till the end of the age, Christ says. We have that same confidence. It's not promised to be easy in this life to remain faithful to God. But we are commanded to choose Him above all else. But we have to pick up on this, that while we face this different trials and different hardships in our lives, that we're called still to choose God each and every day and to be strong and courageous in the face of an unbelieving world. And we can do that only when we stay grounded in His Word. We have to know it. We have to not only know it, but we have to follow it. That's two very different things. Lots of people know it, few people follow it, and even fewer rightly apply it and never discount it. Never say, well, that doesn't apply to me anymore because I don't like it in this culture. God gives Joshua a choice. But the command to follow God 
was one that Joshua honored, and he followed him, and he chose each and every day to follow him. He's told him to never turn from God's word. Make sure it's embedded in your heart and in your mind, and that's where it needs to be for us too. We still have to respond to this command, right? We still have to read this, choose this day whom you will serve, and we've got to follow that. We make that choice every day, minute by minute, every day, every situation we come across, we make that decision. Am I going to follow God in this? Or am I going to ignore that and follow something else? And it's evident by our personal lives. And it's evident by our desire to get up on Sunday mornings and go worship. And it is evident in the church that we choose to join or or no church at all. Those things point to something. It is most evident in how we seek to honor and glorify Jesus Christ for who He is and what He has done to save us when we serve, as the Bible commands us in 2 Corinthians, to be ambassadors for Christ. That is calling us to represent Him accurately to His Word by everything we say and everything we do, knowing we won't do it perfect. But that is what we strive for. We know that when we choose to follow, we choose Christ. We choose Christ and we choose life. We choose eternal life by and through His suffering, His death on that cross, His resurrection, His ascension into heaven. We know that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that faith, though, that faith and that trust, it brings glory to God. And it is shown to all people by our obedience to His Word to be set apart as holy, for He is holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many examples that you have chosen to give us of both men and women who remain faithful to you across any number of hardships. Lord, we can be a fickle people because you have blessed us so tremendously by choosing our time and place in the West where we enjoy freedom and prosperity where we can gather to worship you, where we can speak openly about our faith. Lord, help us to internalize and understand what it means to remain faithful to you when the consequences are severe, when it means more than an uncomfortable conversation or the loss of a friendship. Lord, we do lift up and pray for the lost. We all have them in our lives. You have chosen to work through us as your ambassadors. We pray that as you bring people, family members, friends, colleagues, associates, in our lives, across our paths, that we would indeed represent Jesus Christ to them, not just in our actions, but certainly in our actions, but also in words, God. Give us boldness. Lord, we think of the apostles who had to pray for boldness and Yet our biggest plague is buying into the lie that we don't know enough to speak of you. We marvel at you. You are incomprehensible and we will never know all there is to know. But God, give us confidence that we know enough. Because we know you sent your son. We follow him as our Lord, our master, our king, our savior. It's his name we pray. Amen.